Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Well, good morning, OBC family and friends. Thank you for joining us today on Palm Sunday as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20, Wait until you meet my cousin. You know, growing up in Illinois, I was a big Chicago Bulls fan. And we had lots of fun in the 90s. They won six championships. The Bulls became world famous as they dominated the NBA during that time. Thinking about the team, most people recognize the names and accomplishments of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and even the exploits of Dennis Rodman. But how about Luke Longley, Stacey Keene, Will Perdue, David Vaughn, and Jack Haley. Not everyone on that team was a superstar or an all-star. Most of them just played their assigned roles and would never start or play meaningful minutes on another team. However, as a group, they accomplished something amazing as everyone understood and accepted their assigned roles. Indeed, when it came to crunch time, everyone knew who was going to get the ball and when. In last week's passage, John had warned his listeners to examine whether their actions were aligned with their heart. He calls their motivations into questions and commands them to bear fruit with their profession of repentance. This fruit is demonstrated by loving their neighbors with a love that is fueled by a new heart that has been regenerated by Yahweh. Now the story of redemption continues here as we open up Luke chapter 3. As John downplays his ministry by pointing that the Messiah's ministry will be greater in power and in permanence than his own. So with that, take your Bible and join me in Luke chapter 3, starting with verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning. We just thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the technology that allows us to communicate and still continue to meet in somewhat of a virtual gathering. I pray that all who are watching and listening this morning would Hearts would be open to your word, that we would be receptive to the Holy Spirit's work, and Father, that you give us wisdom as we discern your truth. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, Luke gives his readers three things that they can be certain about John's humility, the Messiah's purpose, and Herod's depravity. Luke begins to move the narrative along here by focusing on the natural curiosity of the people about John's identity and ministry. As you can see, Luke differentiates the questioners as the people rather than the crowd from last week's passage. Luke's narrative now focuses on the people using a different Greek word than the one that was used for crowd. 
The word don't denotes the, the, the people of God, either Israel or by extension the Christian church. This is a group of people who are hanging around uh, wanting more insight after the crowd has left. These are true believers. These are most likely those that had generally repented from their sin and those who had responded positively to John's ministry and message. These were those that were anticipating and looking for the Messiah's uh, for the Messiah that was promised by Yahweh. They had been drawn by his powerful message in the ministry. And their curiosity is piqued as they wondered if John could be the Messiah. Interestingly, John the Baptist himself, later in life, would send his disciples to ask Jesus the same question. As we read this, you and I must be reminded of the national and personal hope that the Jewish people harbored deep in their heart for the arrival of the one who delivered them from the hated Roman occupation and restore their nation. Many held on to the promise given in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I would like to just take a moment to just make a quick pastoral note as we consider that passage of scripture itself, 2 Chronicles 7.14. This is a promise that is given to a particular people in a particular nation. And many times this passage has been misused, even today in applying it to the United States or some other country, wherever you may reside. However, this promise was given to King Solomon at the dedication of the temple in Israel. It is not an open-ended promise to any country at any time. With that being said, the principle of repentance and the forgiveness of sin is an eternal promise given to all people at all times and all places. So going back to Luke, this was the mindset of the people. The people following John were, expect, were experiencing messianic fever that had them questioning whether or not John was the Messiah. He was the Christ, the one they had been praying and looking for for centuries. As we continue reading, we see that John wastes no time in dispelling any hope or anticipation that he might be the Messiah, that he might be the Christ. So in verse 16, we see that first observation. We see John's humility as he remarks, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John dispels any thoughts, hopes, or questions on his identity by humbly stating that the one, the Messiah, the one that has come, is much greater than him, and he is still coming. He displays his humility by identifying himself with a lowly slave. He uses a phrase that depicts the job of the lowliest housemaid who would be tasked with untying the sandal of his masters and washing the masters dirty feet. Now this would have shocked his listeners. Until now they considered John a powerful preacher who, whose words had cut to the heart and convicted them of their sin and need for repentance. They had traveled from all over the country to hear him speak. They were moved to action and followed his call to be baptized. Only now they hear him express a humble spirit and point to someone who is mightier than him. Not only does John show his humility by comparing his personal status with the Messiah, but also by declaring the uh, preeminence of the Messiah's baptism over his. Again, looking at verse 16, 
John states that he baptized with water, but the Messiah will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. In stating this, John declares that his baptism with water is symbolical, and it's limited in its effect. While the Messiah's baptism involves an immersion of the Holy Spirit that is both powerful and permanent. This disclosure precedes Christ's words to Nicodemus, found in John chapter 3, 5, where John declares, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here we read John MacArthur, who writes, that Jesus referred not to literal water here, but to the need for cleansing. The Old Testament sometimes uses water as a metaphor for spiritual cleansing or renewal. Thus, Jesus made reference to the spiritual washing or the purification of soul accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God at the moment of salvation required for belonging to His kingdom. You see, the baptism of the Holy Spirit transforms one from the darkness into the light. It ushers one into the family of God. It guides one into the truth and it preserves the soul for eternity. His description of fire depicts the effect of the Holy Spirit's work. Fire is an ancient symbol of purification, refinement, and judgment. John emphasizes that the Holy Spirit is active in this process. Up to this point in Luke, the Holy Spirit has just been seen as giving life and opening the womb of Elizabeth, John's mother, and in the conception of Jesus within Mary's womb. Now the third person of the Trinity, his work is described as fire. And like fire, fire is powerful and moves rapidly feeding on the provided fuel and leaving ashes in its wake. In the same way, the Holy Spirit moves powerfully, burning away the dross in our life, subjugating the works of Satan in our lives, and purifies the heart, making it ready for the new growth of the fruits of the Spirit. Jesus promised his disciples in that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, would come to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not only do we see the power of the Messiah's baptism, but also its permanence. The Apostle Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. John's purpose in life was preparing the way of the Messiah, and he understood that and he accepted that. And Luke made it, makes it clear that John does not waver in his purpose by basking in the glow of the people's adoration, admiration, or acceptance. Now, as we move to verse 17, we're going to see the second observation, and that is that of the Messiah's purpose. Look at verse 17 with me. His winnowing fork is in his hand declare his threshing floor, and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John warns the people of the Messiah's mission. Not only will he baptize with the Holy Spirit that will burn as a fire, powerful, rapid, clearing a path uh, and destroying, but he also will clear out his house by shifting out the chaff from the wheat, and he will preserve and make room for the wheat while destroying the shaft with fire. 
John here is using an agricultural term and drawing a word picture of the Messiah's ministry. Theologian Walter Beefield writes that the grain is tossed in the air as if you could picture a farmer who now has his wheat after the harvest. It's sitting there on the threshing floor. This is where they're going to sort out what is good and what is bad. It says the grain is tossed in the air with a wooden rake. And as he throws it in the air, the lighter and heavier elements are then separated by the wind. The heavier grain would be falling on the thresher fleshing floor while the shaft would be blown away to the side. Now, as you can imagine, this would leave a mess on the threshing floor with piles of wheat ac uh, accumulating around him and the chaff dispersed around the area. To clear the floor, the farmer would then collect the wheat and store it in a barn or a granary for safekeeping from the elements in order to be used later. While the shaft is good for nothing but to be collected and used as kindling to start fires and eventually burned up. You see, the Messiah's purpose will be offered grace to some and judgment to others. The writer of Hebrews proclaims in Hebrews, he says, just as an appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So what we see is the chaff is those who will be appointed to die in the judgment, while the wheat, we, his children, are going to be waiting for him and he's going to save us. In verse 18, Luke writes that John preached and exhorted the good news of the gospel of the message, Messiah's appearance, excuse me, and his purposes that include both grace and judgment. John preached not himself, but the Messiah. And this leads us to the third observation that Luke wants his readers to have certainty about in verses 19 and 20. And as we come to those two verses, Luke has pointed out to us the depravity of Herod, his sin. Read along with me as Luke writes in verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to this all, added to, the, to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Here we read of Herod the Tetrarch of Judah, who takes his brother's wife as his mistress and wife. Luke points out that Herod had done a lot of evil things, but this one topped the cake. This was not only scandalous, but a direct disobedience and rebellion against the law of Moses. When Luke writes that John reproved Herod, it means that he exposed his sin, he rebuked his actions, and he showed him his fault. In short, John rebukes Herod for his sinful action, and Herod responds by locking John up in prison. Interestingly, Luke concludes this chapter of John's life out of chronological order. John's imprisonment actually happens later in Jesus' ministry and in the timeline of history. But Luke is not writing chronologically here, but more topically. Just as Luke opened up his gospel about, uh, by writing about the promise of John's birth and then moving to the promise of Jesus' birth, then moving back to John's birth and development, and then back over to Jesus in the first two chapters. In chapter 3, he's writing about John's public ministry before ending here with the introduction 
of Jesus, as now Jesus will enter into the scene, as we will see next week. All of that to say that Luke is now moving John off to the scene so that he may focus on Jesus. John is preparing the way now. Jesus is getting ready, uh, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Luke's quick depiction of John's ministry gives his readers certainty that John served God in his generation. Even in his ignoble death by the heinous acts of Herod, John gives glory to God and humbly prepares the way of the Messiah. In God's, God's sovereign uh, plan of redemption, no service, no suffering, no sacrifice is wasted, ignored, but instead it is rejoiced, rewarded, and requited. Now, I do want to take a few minute, moments to consider several of the spiritual truths that are found in this observation above, some in words of encouragement, also some words of warning. First is the promise that the Messiah would baptize with the Spirit. Now, this is a fulfillment of the promises that are found in the Old Testament. <coughs> Isaiah writes down the promises of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 44. In verse 1, the prophet declares, But now, hero of Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have served, thus saith the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb, and who helped you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, uh, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land, and the streams on the dry down ground, and I will pour my spirit upon your offering, and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, the prophet declares the word of the Lord, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'd like to ask you as you're at home, take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. These promises have given the remnant of Israel hope for centuries as they prayed and anticipated the coming of the Messiah. The promise of the Spirit would deliver, would cleanse, would renew, and God's children would have something that water baptism nor the observance of the law could ever do. But with this promise of life is also a promise of righteous judgment. Now that you found Isaiah chapter 11, read with me in verse 1. For God declares that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We're speaking now of the Messiah, the Christ. In verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide, disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. What is the source of this? The Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. See, after centuries of subjugation and oppression by invading armies and cruel emperors, they have a king that will rule in righteousness and fairness and with equity. This king will no longer overlook the downtrodden or take bribes from the wicked, but will judge with perfect wisdom 
and punish evil. This is the king, the Messiah, that they were looking forward to. Forward to. <clears throat> Jesus promised his disciples that after his ascension, that he would send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to sanctify them and guide them in truth. This was accomplished when the Holy Spirit descended upon them in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It will be finalized on the day when Christ returns to reward the faithful and judge the wicked. So first we must understand the power and the effectiveness of the Spirit. Secondly is the promise of reward and the warning of judgment. Again, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13. This truth is found and taught in the parable of the weeds, which is very similar to the agricultural picture that Luke or John, excuse me, had painted earlier. In Matthew chapter 13, look at verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then weeds appeared also. And the servants and the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? In verse 28 we read that he said that an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. This is a familiar parable to many of us. But as you and I continue in verse 37 of chapter 13 of Matthew, the disciples came to him and asked him, what did this parable meant? What did it mean? Verse 37, Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. The field is in the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, they will gather out his kingdom and all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, he says, let him hear. This agriculture word picture paints the Messiah's purpose in offering both grace and judgment. Grace in preserving the wheat coming from the good seed and judgment in destroying the weeds. In both this passage and our passage in Luke, the judgment includes fire. The fire here in Luke 3.17 is described as an unquenchable fire and betrays the horrible nature of this judgment. It is forever, it is never relenting, and it is irreversible. Today, hell is nothing more than a curse word. It's a byword. It's a word used with such regularity and flippancy that it's lost all of its original meaning. Today, many pastors and churches have forsaken or denied this important doctrine that is taught in the Bible. But you and I must never be tempted to do so. 
We must not water down, so to speak, its reality or its existence. Hell is real. It is a place of judgment. Wayne Grubman identifies and describes hell. He says, hell is a place of eternal consciousness, punishment for the wicked. I want us to think about that as you just look at those phrases. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the world. It is a place. It is a real place. It is eternal. It is everlasting. It never ends. There is no respite. There is no recovery time. There is no time out. It is conscious. In other words, you and I are awake at this time. We will feel the pain. We will feel the absence of God's presence. We will feel the eternal wrath of God poured out on us. It is a punishment for all those who are not God's children. It is something that is deservingly uh, reserved for those that have rejected God's commands. It's for the wicked. You and I must understand that the Bible tells us that all have sinned. You may be sitting here watching or listening to me this morning thinking hell is not for you, but I would say all who come from the womb are destined for hell unless God were to reach out and to call us to himself and to bring us to himself. For all of sin comes short of the glory of God. You and I must understand that. For we are all the wicked. We are all disobedient. But God being rich in mercy, the Bible tells us, Demonstrated his love and sending his son. So hell is a real place. It is eternal. It is conscience. And it is reserved for the wicked. So there's a warning for you this morning. You must turn to Christ. If not, hell is designed for you. It's your destiny. In our passage today, we read that the farmer is described as the one in which the sorting has already been done. And that all that the Messiah has to do is to clear his threshing floor. You see, the gospel, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ is the means in which God has done the weaning. Those who respond positively to the preaching of the gospel in repentance and faith will be accepted and rewarded by God while those who have rejected the gospel will be rejected and judged. I would call you this morning, please come to Christ. For us today, I'd like to end by sharing you several things that you and I should do in regard to this message. The first one is like John, you and I are to humbly point to Christ. We need to recognize that the Messiah, that Jesus, is mightier than it. His ministry, his purpose, his identity is much greater than you and I. And we are to point to him in all of our. Our assigned role is to point others to Christ, not to our own achievements, creativity, intelligence, but to point to Christ. We are to warn others about judgment, for it is real. Our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, they must understand that they are the, under the judgment of God. The wrath of God awaits all those who have rejected Christ. So we must repent. Repent is a word that means that we understand who God is and who we are. We understand our sin. We recognize our need for a Savior. 
And we turn from that sin. We have a changed mind and a changed heart. And we turn and trust in Christ and what he has done and accomplished for you and I. I call you this morning to repent and put your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin and that his righteousness earns our way there. And lastly, we must rest in the grace of God who preserves us, sustains us, and protects us even during these most difficult trying times. I call you to you this morning to pause, to consider and pray about this passage. How is the Holy Spirit calling you to respond? Would you do so this morning? If you do not know Christ, would you do so today? Would you repent and turn towards Him? If you are a skeptic, would you turn and see that the message, the warnings of Scripture are meant for you? Today is the day of salvation. Would you taste and see that God is good? If you're here and you're a believer and you're struggling, would you just rest in God's promises and His security? And for all believers, let us live our lives in such a way that we point to Christ and not to ourselves. I would like to close with the words that are found in John chapter 3, verses 30 through 31, where John gives his testimony here. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who came from above is above all. All, all he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. To God be the glory. We thank you so much. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this message. We pray that you just continue to be with us. Lord, I pray that we respond positively to your message. And I pray that you would bring us very quickly back to you. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.